Alrighty. If you want to grab your Bibles out, we're going to be reading from John chapter 5, uh, verse 31. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in him you have eternal life. In them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the, on- from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Good morning again. (laughs) How do you know if somebody is telling you the truth? I guess it can vary from situation to situation. I know that uh, my wife can basically look at my children and tell you whether or not they're telling the truth. This is easier when they're young, it gets harder as they get older. But she can just look and tell. I'm not sure if she can do the same with me. Um, But she certainly could with my children. I know that with police, they they want to know who's telling the truth, don't they? They get their witnesses. They check things out. They gather their evidence. And, of course, when you're writing your essays at university, you can't just say somebody says something. You need to quote them and properly reference it so that you can presented in a truthful way. How do you know if someone's telling the truth? How do you know when it comes to people making claims about God that they're telling the truth? Because there are plenty of people in this world who make claims about God, who say, I'm telling the truth about God. There's Gautama, who who we know as Buddha, He made certain claims about God not being there and and his connection with the oneness of the universe. He claimed that he became enlightened and so you should listen to what he's got to say. Then, of course, there's Muhammad, who claims to be the last prophet 
He makes claims for God. There is, of course, the Lord Jesus, but there's uh, Baha'i Allah and Joseph Smith of the Mormons. They're all making claims, aren't they? They're all making claims, and we're probably rubbing shoulders with some of these people when we're on campus. Jesus, in particular, for us, makes claims, which are significant claims. Look at verses 15 to 18 again. This is the first half of chapter 5. and Look at verse 15. This is what Jesus has been saying and doing. He's, he's healed this man. And then in verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So Jesus is healing people on the Sabbath. And for the Jews around him, they were saying, you're not to work on the Sabbath. Right? We're to work six, have one day off. But look at Jesus' response in verse 17. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now. And I am working. That is, God, my Father, is, is always working, and so I'm always working. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus was saying, God works and sustains the universe seven, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. He doesn't stop. Well... That's how I work. It's quite a claim. Look in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So that is Jesus saying, I am the source of life. I work as God works. I give life. As God gives life. Look at verse 22 to 23. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. So Jesus is now saying that I am. The, I, I am how God judges this world. The judgment of this world is in me. And you have to honour me the same way you honour the Father. That's a big claim. That's saying you have to honour me as you honour God. Jesus is making some big claims here. He's claiming that he works as God works, that he has, is the source of life of God, and that he is to be honoured as God. That's the first half of chapter 5 of uh, the book of John. And then in the second half, we see that Jesus here spells out how you can know what he's saying is true. In this second half, Jesus answers the question of how can we know? Let's look at verse 31 to 32 to see how Jesus describes his evidence. Now, it may have been that people have said to you, where's the evidence for Christianity? 
you're talking to your friends and they say, what evidence do you have? Maybe they haven't asked that, but maybe they have. Maybe it's something you've thought yourself. Well, this section of the Bible is where Jesus actually spells out the evidences that, that he's presenting. He's made these claims of divinity. And now the second half of the chapter, he's going to be putting forward the evidence for himself. So it's a great chapter for us to look at. Look at verses 31 to 32. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. In verse 31, Jesus is saying that if he testifies about himself, his testimony is not considered valid. Now, in one sense, uh, this is a reasonable thing to say, isn't it? You can see why he might say that. If you go for a job and uh, you're going uh, for a job, say, as a, a doctor, then they're going to want some evidence that, you've, that you are a doctor rather than just you just saying it. Right before you go sticking needles in people or cutting people's arms off or whatever is going to happen, um, th there needs to be some evidence that you can do this type of work. Your own, re your own reference to yourself, you telling you about yourself, may be true, but we generally want to have more from a previous employer or something else. We need to have some other testimony. As uh, it says earlier in the Bible that let every truth be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, this is reasonable that Jesus says this, but I have to be honest, I felt uncomfortable when he said this. I felt uncomfortable because the way I read the Bible is if Jesus says it, well, that's it. I don't know how you felt when you read that. I felt a little bit uncomfortable. Jesus says, if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed True. For me, it, it is deemed true. I believe it because of Jesus, probably because of the other reasons that he gives later on have all come back into what he's saying. But this is the question that was being asked of Jesus and that Jesus goes on to answer. And it's actually something we should ask of the other religions as well. You should ask this of the Mormons. You should ask this of Muhammad. You should ask this of Buddha. If Buddha claims to have reached enlightenment, how do you know? How do you know if a guy actually reached enlightenment? Jesus spells out his evidence here. Now, he lists out three different things that we're going to look at. There's the, the evidence of John the Baptist, the evidence of the, the works and the life of Jesus, and then the evidence of prophecies fulfilled. And that's where we're going to be heading today. Well, let's have a look at the first of these, the witness of John, verse 33. There is another who bears witness, sorry, that's verse 32. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So this is the first testimony of John. Now, who is John? John is a prophet who was just before Jesus. And when we read all of the gospel accounts, at the beginning, they all have John in the beginning somewhere. 
And there's this overlap period between John and Jesus. And what's interesting is that uh, many of Jesus' disciples were initially disciples of John. So that they were disciples of John and Jesus. And John was accepted as a prophet by many at the time, uh, around the time and just before Jesus. He was recognised as the voice of God. He was seen as a man of God. If we go back to John chapter 1, so just go a few pages back to your left. We meet John here. Verse 19, chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, Who are you then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie these things took place in Bethany near the Jordan where John was baptizing the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world so you see there there's the apostle of the the prophet John and there's his testimony to Jesus to the coming of the one greater than him the one who's He's he's like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, isn't he? He's not worthy to stoop down before this one. And uh, and this is the one who will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He identified Jesus. He was a a living witness at that time. People people knew John. He'd been alive in their time. But it's interesting what Jesus says about John, isn't it? He speaks of him in verse 34 as a human witness and and that Jesus himself doesn't accept John's witness. Did you find that a little odd? I did. Just look at it again. Verse 34, not that the witness that I receive is from man. The NIV has it as a human witness. I don't receive human witness, but I say these things that you may be saved. John's witness is is spoken of as human testimony and Jesus saying, I've got something more than that, but I just say this so that you can uh, have the testimony of John. You see, John was the man of God in their lives at that time. He was the serious man of God for them. And what's interesting is that Jesus speaks about John the Baptist and also about us. And he actually says in various places in the synoptics, but Matthew 11, verse 11, that the least in the kingdom of God will be greater than John. And I think it's fair to say that just as John was the serious man of God 
for the people around at Jesus' day that they could go and speak to and get their testimony from, that in the same way, you can be the serious man or woman of God in the life of those around you. And I think that for many of us, that's the first way in which we get introduced to Jesus. By the men and the women of God who are serious around us. It's a human testimony. It's not the testimony that Jesus himself needs, but it's the testimony of this world. Those who have had an experience of Jesus and can speak about it. See, you need to realise what place you play in the testimony of Jesus to this world. You are not insignificant. Now, when Jesus comes, he comes on his own authority. He doesn't need your testimony. Don't get me wrong. It is just an earthly testimony. But to those around us, your testimony counts. When I was at school, one of the things that impressed me was a Christian teacher. She was different to the other teachers. She had a, a different character to her. She had a great testimony to God. And she was part of the reason why I became a Christian. So I want you to think about being a good testimony to Jesus in your life. Your life is not insignificant. What you learn about Christ, the way that you testify to Christ, the life that you live has an impact on the people around you. And for many of them, they will see you and that's their first port of call for what they're going to think about Jesus. What about the second witness that Jesus brings? Look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now these works that Jesus is referring to are the signs that he's been giving. And there have been these, the signs of the power of God, in particular for the healing of people and his power over creation. And Jesus says that the signs that he's doing are actually part of the evidence that you can know he is genuine. And the people in Jesus' day obviously were experiencing these things. Now Jesus is more than a miracle worker, but he was a miracle worker. He was a man who displayed the power of God in a way that nobody else ever has. He did remarkable acts of power. And I think it's good for us just to remember some of these. In Mark 10, we we read about an occasion when Jesus was going into Jericho and there were these blind people begging on the side of the road. Now, I don't know what you're like when you see beggars when you're walking around Sydney. You might try to walk away from them or something. But these beggars were there and they heard that Jesus was coming and Jesus is a religious man and, and they start crying out to him. They're crying out and all the followers of Jesus are saying, look, 
Jesus is too important for this guy. You know, we're on important work here. We're on the mission of God here. But this man, Bartimaeus, he just kept yelling and, you know, it was probably really annoying to everyone who was around him. And Jesus went over and said, what do you want? He goes, I want my sight. And he just healed the man there and then. And people were amazed. Up in the north of, uh, of Israel, Jesus went to a place called the Decapolis. And again, there was a deaf man there. And he, hadn't, he couldn't speak properly or anything like that. And these people, they were desperate. His friends were desperate for him. We don't know exactly what it is. But his, his friends brought him to Jesus. And Jesus just healed this man's deafness. And then he could speak immediately. And people were amazed. In John chapter 5, we see the man who was 38 years old, lame, made strong immediately so that he could walk. There was the widow in Nain who uh, her son had died. She now had no support. She's in a desperate situation. And they're carrying out her son's body. Jesus just raises the man from the dead. He raised a man from the dead. I don't know if maybe one of your parents have died. I've had uh, family members die. But to have them brought back to life is absolutely amazing. And, and, you know, Jesus, when he did them, you know, it's one of those incidental things that you read in the New Testament which shows you its truthfulness. In that Jesus doesn't go around saying, go tell everyone, because it was actually a problem that he was doing this. See, there, there are many people who claim to be healers today. They claim to be healing. But what you'll notice is there's not thousands of people crowding around their house getting healing because they're not really doing healings like Jesus did. When Jesus was healing, the power of God was so evident in his life that it was madness around him. It was madness. People were just crowding in. It was an out-of-control situation. Because he was genuinely healing people. Let me assure you, if one of you here had the power of God to heal in the way that Jesus did, you would have people coming around you all the time because there are so many desperate, sick people in Australia with our health system. There are still so many desperate, sick people in terrible situations that they would hear about you and they would come. And that's what you have recorded in the Bible, that Jesus was saying, oh, he, but don't say it, don't say it, because it just led to, to chaos around him. And he had to try to do things quietly, which, of course, he, he couldn't do. Jesus healed like no one else. He calmed the storm. He drove out evil forces. There is no one like Jesus. The works that he did are like no one else. And these miracles speak of who, he's, who he is. And it was great to hear that young man speaking about reading the Bible with his friends because when you read a gospel with someone, they are reading about the life of Jesus. They see these signs that he does. How is it that you apply this evidence that Jesus is speaking about here? You do one-to-one -one with someone. You read a gospel with them. You get them to read these stories themselves and say, what does this show about Jesus? You let Jesus' miracles speak for themselves because they do speak for themselves. I, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. 
And it was in a, about grade 11 at school when I first started to think about the things of God. And I, uh, like era one, I got a Gideon's Bible and I just started to read it. And I read Matthew and I was struck by the power of Jesus. I was struck by his power uh, to, to heal and to forgive, his power to calm the storms. And I was struck and, and realised that there was no one like him. This is the evidence that Jesus gives. He says, my signs, the works that I do, are a testimony from God. And we have those in the gospel accounts. And when you read them with your friends, your friends will see those for themselves and they will testify to them. Those miracles that Jesus did were not just for his age back there, but they're for every age, and we share them in our evangelism. The third evidence that Jesus looks at is what we see in verse 37. Verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. So here's this father. Jesus is speaking about the father. and He says that the father has given witness to Jesus, but you've never heard his voice and his form you have never seen. So my question is, well, how does the father testify? So if, if Jesus is saying the father testifies to me, but you've never heard his voice, you've never seen his form, well, how does, how does he testify? Look at verse 38. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe on the one he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me. You see, God is transcendent. God, our heavenly father, is transcendent and outside of our creation. So how is it that that God bears testimony, well, he does so through his word. He does so by inspiring prophets to speak. He testifies through his scriptures, what we have in the Bible. And Jesus is saying here that the, the scriptures of Moses and the earlier prophets before Jesus came, that these testify to him and to his truthfulness to the truthfulness of what he's saying. Now, the Old Testament has, has many purposes, doesn't it? It, it, has, uh, it has the purpose of, of just telling us how to live the godly life. But, of course, the Old Testament provides the story for us. It provides the history so that when Jesus the Messiah comes, he fits into a history that we can understand so we can understand his significance the Old Testament provides us with all the concepts to understand Jesus. So it provides us with the concepts of, of, uh, of creation, of sin, of judgment, of sacrifice, of salvation. All of, these, um, all of these ideas which come to their fulfillment in Jesus. It gives us the concepts so that we can understand him. It talks about the covenants, the promises that God makes that we see come to their fulfilment in Jesus. It means that because there's this history there, the words that we use about Jesus have meaning. There's a history of meaning to them so that we can understand what Jesus is about. In particular, today, I just want us to look at 
some of the predictive promises of the Old Testament. It prepares the way for Jesus in, in every way, as I've just outlined, but it also does so in predictive ways. And I thought we'd just look at one book in particular um, to start off with, Isaiah. So let's come back to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. Now here it is speaking about the coming Messiah, the one who will bring God's kingdom. And it says, chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his his government, and peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom he will establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will will do this so here is this promise of the coming Messiah who will be God with us come across to chapter 35 we're just going to look at a few of these Isaiah 35, we're going to see what this kingdom is going to look like when this Messiah brings this kingdom. Isaiah 35 verse 5, again it's speaking about the coming of God's kingdom that this Messiah will bring. Isaiah 35 verse 5, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man walk like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. You see, that this is what's going to happen. This is what it's going to be like when God's kingdom starts to come, when the Messiah brings the kingdom. Come across with me to Isaiah 53. Actually, sorry, verse 40, verse 40. Sorry, chapter 40. Chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so we see that when God's kingdom comes, there's going to be a proclamation of one from the desert preparing the way for the coming of God, which, of course, is John the Baptist. Come to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but we'll just look at verses 4 to 6. It's speaking about the coming servant of the Lord, the righteous servant. And in the book of Isaiah, the only righteous servant is the Messiah. The nation of Israel has failed to be the true servant of God. So here is this prophecy of the Messiah, the the true servant of God. And it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, I'm not going to look at the rest of the Old Testament, but I've just looked at one section there, and we could have gone on in Isaiah to look at the coming new creation, that when the kingdom of God comes, it's the resurrection kingdom. It's not just a repeat of the past of earthly kingdoms, but it's going to be the new creation, the age of the resurrection. So if we look at Isaiah, we see that it talks about the coming Messiah who will bring the kingdom of God where the deaf will hear, the lame will walk, the blind will see. It will be announced in the desert by a messenger. There will be the salvation that this one brings who dies for the sins of others as he brings the resurrection kingdom of God and the new creation. Now that's exactly what Jesus does, isn't it? You know, we could have looked at Jeremiah 31, 31 with the new covenant that Jesus brings. Or Ezekiel 36, 26 with the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus brings. Or the book of Daniel, which talks about the coming resurrection kingdom. You see, one of the reasons I know that Christianity is true is that Jesus genuinely fulfills in a remarkable way the prophecies of the Old Testament. Now, I don't want you to think that that is easy to do. You know, it's not until very often you compare one thing to another that you realise how good something is. Comparing things often helps you to do that. Because what I've just showed you of Jesus, you might, you know, I assume that for most of us, we've grown up hearing something like that. And you just probably assume that, okay, Jesus fulfils the Old Testament. You might even be a little blasé about it. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. That's nice. I want to say to you, that is really hard to do. That is really hard to do. Islam is soon to become the world's largest religion. And so Muhammad is one of the big uh, religious figures in the history of the world. Muhammad is a huge figure in the history of the religious figure in the history of the world. And in the Quran, the holy book of Islam, Muhammad says, you can know that I'm true because I'm foretold in the Bible. In Surah 7, verse 157, and in other places. Muhammad says that he is foretold in the Bible. And so you can know that he is true. The trouble is, of course, when you go and read the Bible... There's no such prophecies about Muhammad. Muslims put forward various ones from John chapter 14 to 16 where they say Jesus is speaking about Muhammad, but Jesus is speaking about the Holy Spirit. He's not speaking about Muhammad. And in fact, you know that Muslims know there's none in the Old Testament. You know how? So you, I know that Muslims know there is no reference to Muhammad in the Bible. Do you know how I know? Because of this book. This is called the Gospel of Barnabas. And it was written by a Muslim in the 14th century. There's been another one that they've written in 1979. And you can look those up. And what this book does 
is it rewrites the Bible. It rewrites the Bible so that Jesus foretells the coming of Muhammad and that Jesus practices Islam and does those things. Now, why do you do that? Why have Muslim leaders had to go back and rewrite the Bible? It's because Muhammad's not foretold in the Bible like he said he was. Muhammad's a pretty big figure. Yet he, his promises are false. You can test him and he's false. And you know what? I'm so glad that as Christians we don't have to rewrite the Old Testament. You've probably never thought about that before, have you? See, this is the problem. You just assume that, yeah, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. That's nice. It's remarkable. It's miraculous. And when the big people on world history, the big religious figures like Muhammad, you don't get much bigger than him, when Muhammad tries to fulfill the Bible, he fails. Never take for granted the way that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament because it is remarkable It is miraculous. It is the testimony to the truthfulness of Jesus and it is the testimony of God the Father to his Son. When we read the the book of Acts, we often see that that's how the apostles evangelise, isn't it? They talk about the signs of Jesus and his life and how he fulfils the Old Testament, that the promises that God made have come to their fulfilment in Jesus. You see how the apostles are doing what Jesus said in the second half of John chapter 5. I can remember in my early years as a Christian, a Jewish person challenged me and said Jesus didn't fulfill the Old Testament. But after reading it, and and I, I was actually full of doubts at that time, but after going back I saw, wow, he really does. Again, do not take this for granted. Jesus is unique. So we actually do have evidence as Christians. This is the evidence that Jesus puts forward, that that we can present to our world. There is your own testimony. You, as someone who's experienced the life of God yourself, as that serious person of God, you can share that with those around you. There's the the evidence of the life of Jesus that we have in the Gospels, and then there's the fulfilment of prophecy. Now, he finishes up by talking about why some people don't want to accept this testimony. Look at verses 38. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe. Sorry, I'll let people get back to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 38. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So here we see that here are people who do have the scriptures. I've been talking about the scriptures and how they testify to Jesus. But there are people... That Jesus is speaking to and he's saying you have the word though you have the testimony of God but the way you read it means you don't see who I am the way you read it means you don't see who I am now of course we don't want to be like that do we he's saying you diligently study the scriptures do you diligently study the scriptures here are people who diligently study the scriptures but yet don't see who Jesus is 
And the re- he gives a few reasons for this. The first is in verse 41, they don't have the love of God in their hearts. But it, it's more than just not having the love of God. It's having a love for themselves. Come across again to verse 41. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So the the problem these people have got is that they're seeking glory from one another. They're looking at the achievements of each other, and looking you know, at, at their, their approval from each other. Seeing how each other has, has kept the word of God. Looking to each other as people who can keep the word of God. We see this particularly in verse 30, 45, don't we? Um, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Now, Moses is the giver of the law of Israel, and they have set their hope on Moses. Now, I think what Jesus is saying here is Moses is their hope. That is, they're saying, I keep the law of Moses. God's going to save me. That's my hope. My hope is in doing what Moses said. And as they do this, they, they glory amongst each other. They get each other's approval as they set their hope on Moses. And Jesus is saying, if you read the scriptures like that, you'll never understand him. Because you can't keep the law of Moses. If you're reading the Bible saying, right, I'll read this and I will keep it, and, uh, and, and, and I will keep the word of God, and I'll be good enough for God on the basis of what I do, Jesus is saying you will never understand him. Because the Old Testament is not about, the Old Testament demonstrates to us that we cannot keep God's laws. Moses gives the nation of Israel his law, doesn't he? They break it straight away. Whether they have judges, whether they have kings, whether they're in exile, wherever they are, they're always breaking God's law. They come back from exile. They keep breaking his law. The Old Testament does not end with the expectation that one day humanity will get its act together and keep God's law. It ends with, you need God to save you. This is a simple lesson, but it's one we need to understand. That the scriptures are there to show us that we need Jesus. The scriptures are there to show us that in ourselves... We are unworthy before God. We can't keep his law. But for many people, they think they are good enough. For many people, they say, well, I'm I'm not a bad person. I'm pretty good. And so they don't understand what the scriptures are about. The scriptures don't point them to Jesus because they're just thinking about themselves. No, the Old Testament points us to Jesus in all the ways that we've been seeing today. Well, to conclude, Jesus makes some big claims. He makes the biggest claims. He he claims that he works as God works. He claims that he 
gives the life of God. He claims that he is to be worshipped and honoured as God. And he says that we can know this because of the, the testimony of those around us, the testimony of the power of God in his own life, and the way that he fulfills scripture. Now that's actually good evidence. That's the type of evidence you would expect from a God who speaks to us. This is the evidence I want you to believe today. This is the evidence that I want you to to take hold of and, and run to Jesus for life. Run to Jesus for salvation. And it's also the evidence that I want you to learn how to share with your friends around you. Amen. G'day everyone, as mentioned before, my name's Josh, I'm a fourth year primary ed student and I'm going to be praying for us Uh, and if you agree with me at the end, uh, say Amen. Uh, Father God, uh, thank you for John's gospel, thank you that we get to know who Jesus is and thank you that he gives evidence for who he is, uh, God's one and only son, equal with God. Uh, Thank you that he gives evidence through uh, John coming and declaring that he is that Jesus is the one to come. Thank you that Jesus gives evidence through his miracles uh, and his healings. And thank you that Jesus gives evidence, God gives evidence to us that Jesus is God uh, through the scriptures, through the prophets, uh, through the many prophecies that declare that Jesus is the one to come, the Messiah, God. Uh, thank you that we have this great hope and assurance uh, that we can know the truth. Thank you that when our friends Uh, and family uh, argue and uh, fight against this truth that we can be assured in our faith uh, and we can direct them to your word Uh, and I pray that as Christians at university and in all our lives uh, that we might be uh, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, the aroma of Christ to some it might be the stench to death from death to death but to others we pray this might happen it might be the stench from life to life Father, we also pray for this weekend and thank you that we do have the opportunity uh, to fellowship with each other, to grow closer to God uh, and to equip ourselves to go out on university and make Jesus known. I pray for all the first years that are here that are experiencing our uni Bible group fellowship, maybe for the first time this weekend. I really do pray that you would use this weekend to help get them involved and help get them excited for the ample opportunity at Wollongong. Uh, We thank you uh, for one-to-ones. I thank you that so many of us here are are in uh, one-to-ones, learning about the Bible with another, uh, growing in fellowship, uh, and just, yeah, seeing what the Bible has to say to our lives. Uh, I pray for those of us that aren't yet part of a one-to-one, that you might be able to use this weekend to start one. Uh, And Lord, help us think about who uh, we could share the Bible with, we could read the Bible with one-to-one. Uh, thank you for Ewan. Thank you for his ministry to Muslims on campus. And thank you that so many people from all different places in the world uh, are coming to Wollongong Uni and other university campuses. Uh, and they're open to hearing about God, engaging with the Bible, and thinking about who Jesus is. Lord, I pray that we might uh, be ready to share the gospel with them, 
share the Bible with them. And Lord, if it's your will, that you might change them. Father, we pray finally that you might use this weekend to encourage and motivate us to be more like Jesus and to make our first priority glorifying God by proclaiming Jesus Christ at university to present everyone mature in him. We pray this, Lord, knowing that you do hear us uh, and you can answer us if it's according to your will. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.